Welcome to Resilience Radio, Crushing the Tough Stuff with Kim Addis. Brought to you by Frame of Mind Coaching, transforming your world. So what I love most about the Frame of Mind Coaching system is that um, it really goes deep and it gets to the crux of uh, your belief system and things that might be holding you back from taking action or moving forward. So I came to Frame of Mind Coaching about five years ago and I would have to say that the community of people that I am now involved with is the most invaluable piece of the entire experience. Frame of Mind Coaching has changed my life in every facet. My personal life with my kids, with my wife, my marriage has exponentially changed. Frame of Mind Coaching was such a transformational experience. That's definitely one word I would describe it as. And now, here's your host and the founder of Frame of Mind Coaching, Kim Abbas. Welcome, this is Kim Addis from Frame of Mind Coaching and I am the host of Resilience Radio where I interview leaders who are experts at crushing the tough stuff. Today, my guest is a friend, a colleague, and even a mentor of mine who runs a coaching company with a team of coaches, has two different podcasts. The first one is Thrivology and the second one is Save the Marriage. And he's an author of several books, including his most recent book, The Immutable Laws of Living. My guest is Lee Bocom. Lee, welcome. Thanks for having me, Kim. Lee, tell me about Thrivology and Save the Marriage. Would you say they're similar? I'm really interested in relationships. Do you think all marriages are savable? And from your perspective, why do marriages even break down? Uh, So the biggest reason that marriages break down is because people don't understand what they're trying to do with a marriage. Uh, My belief is that marriages are about building a we. You're you're trying to build a place where you have a sense that we are in this together. And I don't think that it really happens uh, anywhere except for within that that kind of a relationship, a marriage relationship. Um, so some people are in a marital relationship and aren't legally married. So I, I include that in this. But there has to be that place where you have basically said we're in it for for good. For you know whatever comes our way, we're going to handle it. And there's a, a psychological transformation that happens that where you say we we are a team. We're in this together. We look at things from and our perspective. And so I noticed that when couples are in trouble, they often are talking about you versus you and me, you know, your, your money, my money, your dreams, my dreams, um, the way you parent, the way I parent, what you want out of sex, what I want out of sex, all of those pieces are you versus me. Um, they think they're you and me, but they're really you versus me because they end up being power struggles unless they say our, you know, our resource, whatever that is. And so it's not so much about whether the people are, um, you know, we talk a lot of those online things talk about compatibility. There's really no research that shows that there's a certain compatibility. Uh, Lots of people uh, find each other for lots of different reasons. Some are opposites attract. Some are, you know, birds of a feather flock together. And so there are lots of ways that can happen. But the bigger thing is, do they make that psychological shift to say, we're here, we're in it together? So what needs to happen in order for a relationship to be saved? Yeah. Uh, so uh, the, the first thing is that a lot of people just having a basic uh, awareness that there is a shift that has to happen. Um, so education, you know, I think we do a rotten job of preparing people to get married. Yeah. So um, the best that happens is sometimes they'll go to 
two, three, four sessions with uh, premarital counseling, um, and that's about it. And other than that, maybe they read a book. The problem is that we have uh, we all approach um, a marriage thinking we we figured it out. You know, <laughs> me and this other person have figured out what nobody else has figured out, and we've got the love that will last. And so they they have uh, they're a little hard of hearing uh, when they're hearing that. And so uh, part of what I work to do when, when I'm working with a person or a couple, because I do both, uh, that are trying to restore a relationship is to help them understand what they were trying, really aiming for. Uh, because if you don't get to you, if, we, if you don't get to we, it always becomes you versus me. Uh, you always start as you and me. And so their progression has been you and me up until the point when they started struggling uh, for control. And there's another piece in there for connection. And as soon as that happens, they revert to you versus me. And so part of my task is to first help them to see kind of where they took the wrong turn, you know, where they diverted. They didn't, they didn't, they went left. They could have gone right. And uh, what that might look like. So once they have that piece of education, now we're back to the place that what's happened along the way is the connection has gotten strained because it became oppositional. So now we're working on reconnection. I, I just believe that humans are... Uh, naturally, um, we, we have to have connection. We're just built that way. I mean, you look at babies, they, and, uh, immediately they need to be held and, and skin contact and talk to and all of that. And that's just what humans are. We are the probably the most um, connection-needing uh, creature in the world. And so um, that's what happens with couples. They start disconnecting because they don't know why they're struggling and they become oppositional. And so part of the task is to get back to the place where they're starting to feel some connection to each other. And then they're willing to step into being a we. Usually by the time I'm talking to them, theoretically, they understand what they missed, but they don't want much to do with the, the other half of the we. Is divorce sometimes a way of saving the marriage? You know, there are a lot of people who have to, for whatever reason, um, get to that place. I, I think that unfortunately, um, and this is part of my uh, more of a, um, a, a critique of the legal system. Uh, we do divorce as this person versus this person, and it becomes very oppositional. You have attorneys who um, are out to protect their client's interest, meaning get everything they can, and it becomes very detrimental. There are lots of people who manage to go through the divorce process in much more, much less of an oppositional way, uh, in a way that says, let's, you know, let's solve our issues, let's divide our assets, let's cooperate. And those are the ones that, if they go through divorce, are much more able to get to something new. But I prefer it to happen before they get to that place because it becomes so oppositional. Do you have to coach both people in order to save a marriage or is one enough? Do you believe that one person alone can change the dynamic in a relationship? I've always said that it doesn't necessarily take two to tango. Why? Because if one person decides to change the steps, then the dance automatically changes and the other person can agree to the new dance or decide to walk away. What do you think of that? Yeah, one person can do transformational things in a relationship because, as you said, uh, you change the dance steps, the dance has to change. Usually, while they're changing the dance steps, there's a couple of, of, of you know tripping episodes because the other person puts their feet where they used to go and, and it doesn't work. And, and the other um, kind of metaphor I use is it's kind of like um, a, a, an, an equation in math, you know, all the way back to um, doing those math equations, you were always trying to make everything equal on both sides. 
this was the algebra thing that each side had to be equal. So if you change one side, it changed the other side. And so if one side is adding something in, you, it, there's going to create a change on the other side. It just has to happen because of the connection that's there. So um, either of those metaphors works for me. I believe that one person can do great things. Um, I also believe that there are times when one person can't do it alone, but the, here's the, the reality is many times there's only one person who's interested in working on it. You know, if both people aren't interested, then we know where that's headed. If both people are interested, that's a very powerful place to be coaching um, and, and a great place to be working. But my experience with people coming to my program, probably at least 80% are one person working on it by themselves. Okay, let's talk about sex for a minute. How do you handle it when someone says, we really haven't had sex in a long time and I don't know what to do. I don't know if we can recover from this. We're really on a dry spell and I'm feeling kind of hopeless. What kind of guidance do you offer in this circumstance? Yeah, so one of the things that uh, I'd like to always be clear about is that sex is uh, one way of connecting. Um, and what we end up with a lot of times is the sex is what I'm getting or not getting, not how are we sharing? And so that's that creates some um, tough dynamics like, you know, I've got to be all turned on before we ever move in that direction rather than seeing that that could be something that's shared. And, and generally, when people start moving in that direction, their body just follows along just right along, ready to go. But um, so part of it is to uh, make sure that they are working on sex as a we, you know, we it's, and it obviously it's each person is experiencing it. So there is a you, me piece, but you and me and we it's, that's who's having sex. So that's an important part. Another important part is for people to recognize that there is um, always going to be a shift in um, and not necessarily a shift down, but a shifting movement of passion in a relationship. Um, the, the danger is when we use the passion in the relationship as the yardstick of whether it's uh, an okay relationship or not. Uh, the fact is that uh, some people are going to have times in their life when they feel more passion and feel more connected and feel less passion and feel less connected. Just, just the natural rhythm of life. And, and the fact is that the more connected we are, the more the passion is going to be available. I'm not saying that it's going to be always there, but it's available. It's When you're disconnected from somebody, it's very hard to uh, move towards that passion. So that's, that's the shift, uh, to recognize that it may be a normal pattern. So I think there's a big distinction between your sex life and your love life. I've always told people that, and I think that people get confused between the two. They often feel that if their sex life is going through a dry spell, it must mean that their love life is also on the rocks. I help people understand that they actually have full control over their love lives, and it's actually their responsibility to show up feeling love and expressing love, and to use any reason out there to feel love. So love is a function of how you see your partner, how you see yourself, and really how you think about your relationship. Oh, absolutely. You, you can have sex and not, not have love, um, and you can be in love and uh, or have love and not be having sex. And so, yeah, those are two variables, but I do believe you're right. I would say I, would, I use the term connection. You know, the more connected you are, the more that is likely to be the case. 
So you wrote this book called The Immutable Laws of Living. Tell me about this book. What are some of the rules you talk about? The immutable laws are uh, these laws that I think float around all of us all of the time that a lot of times people fail to notice the law, but it's still active. Um, and so it gets them stuck because they're breaking the law. Um, I, well, so let me give a little more uh, explanation. I'll give you an example. It's kind of like gravity. You know, you don't have to understand gravity for gravity to be affecting you all the time. And if you don't understand gravity and you try to violate it, it's still going to win. Uh, and you're going to end up with, like I do, plenty of scars to show for the times when gravity won out. And the way this kind of occurred to me that I needed to actually put in a book was um, one day, it was early uh, spring day several years ago, and I go out on my paddleboard on a river nearby, and I come out of the creek, which is really just looks like a small tributary river, and come out of the creek, and I'm right at this the, the bridge into the, the, uh, the river, and there's a restaurant right on the side there. It's a beautiful day. People are out on the banks watching the river. And I suddenly feel very self-conscious because, you know, all these eyes are on me. It was the first time I'd had the paddleboard in the water. Uh, I realized that the water was moving a little faster than I'd expected, was a little rougher than I expected. And I'm like, yeah, these people are going to be in for a show as I'm falling and flailing. And so I think I'm going to just, you know, go up river and get away, get around the bend from them. And so I pull into the a stream and I'm paddling as hard as I can. And I'm really proud of myself because the water's just rushing by me. And I'm like, man, I'm, I'm really cranking. About 20 minutes pass and I look to the side and I'd gone back 10 feet. I'd, <laughs> I'd lost space. And it suddenly occurred to me that, you know, if I really wanted to get out of the way, I would have turned, pointed downstream and clearly gone very fast because I could have paddled faster than the current and the current would have carried me. And I was fighting the current. So that was my thing. When you're fighting these laws, they keep you stuck in place. So let's start with the first law. The first law is life isn't fair. And um, it, the reason that I, I point that in the beginning is because I think that is a belief that we carry from our childhood. Um, when I was a kid, my older brother's 18 months older than me. So we were you know, bear cubs and uh, wrestling all the time. And so my parents would say, oh, here's a cookie. Y'all have to divide it. And so one person would divide it and the other pe person would choose the part. So, you know, you're microscoping it to get it exactly even. So you get your fair share. And, and that's a belief of kids, you know, that things should be fair. And, and all the time you hear kids on the playground, that's not fair. And the problem is, it's that's never true. Um, life's not it's never been fair. And we drag that into adulthood. And so when people are acting, waiting for life to be fair, first, they're waiting. They're waiting for something to happen that's going to even it out. And second, they're working from a scarcity model. You know, they're always looking for what they lack, how they have been done wrong. I have yet to have anybody come in my office who's really doing well and, and knows they're winning and tell me, you know, life's not fair. Look how I'm winning. It's always from the other end. Life's not fair. It owes me. And the owing part is where we get stuck. Um, so when people are um, breaking that law, it's when they're stomping around waiting for life to be fair. Um, when we're obeying it is when we recognize life's not fair. And that that's not really the point, that we can look at things of you know, how, how am I winning already? How am I already ahead of the game in certain areas? And how do I use um, what I've been given to move towards kind of the, and this is really the approach of the book, finding that deeper purpose in life, finding that meaning in life and, and making a difference around us. 
So understanding that life isn't always fair and not waiting for fairness to happen in order for a great relationship to unfold is one of your rules. What's another rule? So another one that, that you'll probably resonate with is that, um, that life is uh, 100% your responsibility. And uh, the, the way I, I love that term responsibility, ability to respond, you know, response ability. And so this isn't about blame. Um, and it's not about saying that, um, that there are not difficult things in life, but to say that it's up to us to really show up to life and take, assume 100% responsibility. If things aren't going our way, what do we do to make that shift? Not, you know, what do we expect somebody else to do for us? And when we start making that shift and finding ways of responding differently, um, you know, Jack Canfield has the equation E plus R equals O. And I just love that. The event plus the, your response equals the outcome. And so many times people get caught in the event. That's the external thing. Something out there happens to us. And we make one of two mistakes. One is we say, okay, that happened to me. Therefore, that's the outcome. You know, whatever happens to me, you can't do anything about it. That's the outcome. The other is to pretend like the event doesn't matter at all. And for me, the event is giving us the opportunities to learn to respond differently, to learn to uh, take on those challenges, which is another one of those laws that life has challenges, and to, to keep moving forward and trying to find better ways of, of responding uh, so that we get an outcome that is more and more like what we want to have happen. Tell me about your coaching business. How did that get started? Yeah, so um, the company started uh, when I wrote the the material on saving a marriage. I thought I'd written a book. Um, this was in two thousand, and I had a friend who said, uh, "What are you going to do with that while you're waiting for a publisher?" I said, "I, I, I hadn't thought about that." And the person suggested make it an ebook. And so uh, I made it an ebook back when I had to explain what an ebook was. And then along comes, you know, Amazon and everybody thinks the ebook is 99 cents. And it, by that time, the ebook had become a whole system. And so um, I, we had added it, uh, audios and other methods, other approaches that just kept stacking up basically because people would say, yeah, but what do I do about this? And so if it was important enough, I created a section on that. And then what happened was um, I got started ha being contacted by people really around the world uh, to the point that I could not uh, handle the request for coaching. And so I brought coaches onto my staff. We now have a staff of uh, eight coaches that um, talk with people who get the material to get them started and then are available if people find themselves stuck along the way. Um, so they and I do the coaching for that program. So it's a little different than yours, um, that it's, it's very focused on that relationship piece. But that kind of expanded uh, into other areas. So uh, one of my coaches and I then took over a coaching academy uh, to teach people how to do uh, high-end, well, very professional coaching. We wanted to make sure that when people are going to be coaches in the world, that they really know how to coach. Um, so that's Impact Coaching Academy. So that it, it, uh, you, you kind of combine it you know, both of those, um, I've got them as separate entities. And, and so the people who are doing my coaching, uh, have actually been trained in uh, coaching training programs. And then I, I, I also teach them my approach. Lee, how can people find you and learn more about how to save their marriage or buy your book? Um, so save the marriage.com is, uh, where they can learn more about the marriage stuff that save the marriage.com. Um, 
The Immutable Laws of Living, that book, um, the easiest way to find it, it's easy to remember, is to go to INeedThatBook.com. INeedThatBook.com. Oh, I love that. That's brilliant. That's just so smart. INeedThatBook.com. Yeah, when people are listening, you know, it's hard to remember something, some long thing. So INeedThatBook.com. You can sit there going, what was that? I needed that book, though. Oh, INeedThatBook.com. When you look back, what's the greatest adversity you faced? I think at one point you were pretty sick. Is that right? Yeah, I had an illness. Um, it was a very strange illness. In fact, the doctor who finally diagnosed it had never seen a case in real life. You know, they talked about it, but never seen a, a case in real life. Um, and uh, that um, the, the phone call when I, I'm, I'm in the other room, really on the couch, and I hear the doctor talking to my wife. And, and there are some bad signs, like when the doctor calls you after hours and leaves you their cell phone number, not the office number, and uses their first name. You, you really know that you, you've, you've triggered something there. Uh, and so he told my wife that uh, what I had, he they um, finalized the diagnosis and that uh, I would be disabled and eventually it would kill me. Um, that'll wake you up uh, when that call comes. That's a, that's a wake up. So part of what it did for me, uh, and, and by the way, I, I, um, the diagnosis was right. The prognosis was not so right. Um, I actually had an acute version of what they thought I had. And so I uh, recovered, but I was super sick for uh, six months and recovering for Another six months after that. Were you still coaching people at that time? How did you manage that? Uh, at that point, I was still seeing uh, clients in the office, and that was how I, my family was being supported. So I would drag myself to the office, uh, see my clients, drag myself home. I, I can only think how bad I was doing as a therapist for those years, but or for the, that year. Um, and just, you know, had no energy, sat there, did what I could, went home and hit the couch, and that was it. Um, and uh, my uh, joints were, I had uh, one of the symptoms of this is arthritis. So uh, all of my joints were swollen and painful to move. And you're a pretty active guy, right? Like you're always out there biking, canoeing, doing outdoorsy things. How did you suddenly handle not being able to move? I, I'm well, okay. So Kim, the secret is I hadn't been so active up until then. And so, so par, part of what changed for me, uh, I call this bonus time because this is a time that I didn't think I would have at that point. I, I, we spent months and months and months thinking, um, okay, you know, when does disability hit? At what point can I, do I admit that I just, I can't do this? And finally, a specialist said, well, good news and bad news. Good news is you've got an acute version um, of of this diagnosis. The, the, so the, the good news is that um, it will burn out and you'll be okay. The bad news is I can't do anything to help you while it does that. Uh, so you're just going to have to be miserable. And so um, it was a slow, slow recovery. At the end of that, I went, wow, uh, you know, all this, I've been talking with people about how to be resilient and how to thrive. I was eating poorly. I was not exercising. Um, and so, uh, um, so two things happened. One is I realized that I had so much time to do some of the things I wanted to do. That really started the let's, let's do some stuff that I think is important in the world. Um, and the other was I need to take care of this body that's got to get me from here to the grave and, and you know, however long that is. So I did, I got, uh, I started eating better and got much more active. So yes, I'm very active now, but um, that's post crisis. 
Okay, but what would you say to entrepreneurs and leaders who say that they need to focus all of their attention on pushing their business forward and they simply have no time to work out? You're going to fall apart, uh, you know, it, and that's the thing. My, my first question is, how long do you want to, to do you want to go? I mean, if you want to burn super hot for a few years, that's great. What do you leave for your family? What do you leave for the business? Or do you want to step back and say, you know, how long can I keep being super effective um, by taking care of myself? Because um, it's I, I don't I think that it's the opposite choice. You don't have time not to do these things. And really what I've discovered is if people want to just kind of um, be healthy, it's really not a long term piece. I mean, uh, high intensity interval training has proven to be very effective. 20 minutes, you know, several times a week and eating is healthy is just a matter of choosing the right foods. So there's not it's not a big puzzle. You know, once I got rid of the junk. As we round the corner to the end of this interview, I have one last question for you. You have a coach on the line. Is there a question that you have for this particular coach? Yeah. So, Kim, what, what do you think I should do to leave a bigger legacy and make a bigger impact in the world? In my opinion, you have a huge opportunity to collaborate with others in the field, even like me. You're out there on your own. And yes, you have your team, but your impact goes as far as those people you can reach on your own. What would it look like if you combine forces with other entities, other coaching companies, maybe, or even speakers who are focused on helping people thrive? What could it look like if you joined your efforts together operationally and from a sales and marketing perspective, what could your impact be if you did that? No, I, mean, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, one of my biggest things is an awareness that um, there is a siloing that happens for all of us that is not help, helpful because you've got great ideas um, that, you know, we, we bring those together. I, I think you're absolutely right. Lee, thank you for being a guest on Resilience Radio, for sharing yourself, your story, and for continuing to make such a big, important difference in the world. Thank you, Kim. So the journaling component of this whole journey has just been paramount. It has allowed me as a client to dump everything that was in my head. It has resonated with me extremely well, and I find this to be a model that is so applicable to so many different people. It really gets to the core of things that might be holding you back. So for me, that's been one of the most profound things uh, and learnings about frame of mind coaching. And my coach really showed me my potential. And, you know, with the journaling in combination with, you know, building this extraordinary relationship, I realized what I have to offer the world. And um, I loved it so much that I'm trained to become a coach myself. You've been listening to Resilience Radio, Crushing the Tough Stuff with Kim Addis. For more information about Frame of Mind Coaching, visit frameofmindcoaching.com.